Obviously. Oh, geez, where to begin? Okay, okay, here's the deal in a nutshell. I'm going off tonight to maybe die. Uh, I don't know. It's scary uh, and it's going to be violent. And there's a whole lot of not feeling good about things going on. I don't care who you are. It isn't something you should have to deal with. But that's where I am. I'll start at the start uh, because this this is not the start. This is close to the end. Okay, okay. I'm distributing this as a podcast to ensure it gets out to the world. Probably no one will hear it and almost certainly no one is going to believe it. But it needs to be told anyway. It can't die with me. There's enough. There's been enough dying. I'm going to share. I'm going to share with the world some very personal things. It's going to be my journals. They're audio journals. I'll put them in the correct order to give you some context to my current situation. I'm posting them off to different servers I've set up around the world via some onion networks, you know, Tor and the like. Uh, I've got a script that will auto-upload them on a schedule because I'm a, I'm a nerd and I know this stuff. But look, I've paid some guy on a, on a bobber job, like freelance site. Uh, you know, it's one of those places where people say they'll, they'll do some sort of set gig for a set amount of money. You know, this guy, he's going to finish the packaging of the posts and see that they get distributed. He doesn't really know why. I'm doing this, and he doesn't know that they're real. I've told him, trust me, but uh, he thinks I'm just staying in character. I've told him to leave them intact as they are, but I wouldn't put it past him to jazz them up a little for more exposure. I'm not sure that English is his first language. It it could be, and he's just uh, not a great text communicator, but I don't think I was able to impart the importance of this task. So I'm going to share my audio journals and provide commentary. It'll be like bonus material on a Blu-ray. Yeah, just to keep threads linked so it's not so uh, broken up and hard to follow. So the essence here is that I thought I knew everything, but that then got stripped away from me pretty quickly when I started reading those. Oh, hang on. Uh, it'd be better let myself tell you more about that. Suffice to say, I fell, I rose, I fell, uh, and now I'm, well, I feel better about myself and what I have to do. I, I Look, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself again, and I'm talking about nonsense you're just not going to get. So each week at the same time to be determined by my distributor slash editor, a.k.a. this anonymous fellow I've contacted, this story is going to go out. And I encourage you to record it or download it 
every episode and invite your friends to listen too. You probably won't believe me, but maybe a friend uh, or a friend of a friend is going to get helped out by what I have to say. Or maybe I'll just paint a vivid world of brilliant colour for your imagination, whatever. So these journals, uh, they're a bit personal at times. And trust me, if you listen to them and cringe at what I say uh, or the actions that I've taken, just know you aren't alone. I'm not, not the happiest chap about some of the stuff I've done. Anyway, that's enough of me. Into the journals. I've decided to start a journal to examine my mental state, mood, maybe learn more about myself. I was going to buy a book and a pen, but that's so last century. I've got a phone with a great mic and uh, a noise reduction, and at home... Here, I've got a USB mic I got from a music game. You know the sort. There, I, I guess that's everything in person I can come up with. So me, who am I? I don't know. I'll just start and see where I get to. The whole idea is the whole idea is I come back and listen through and that will help me figure it out. Uh, I'm off to work at my job. I work at Medino. It's an analytics company that deals with deep learning applications for medical data. We're trying to find a way to help hospitals kill fewer people through incompetence due to a complete lack of funding. As a result, we price our products at 20% less than the cost of a consulting specialist who would normally provide our insights. Presumably that's cheaper than just settling court cases for mis you know, malpractice. Still, turns out to be a bogload of cash, but it saves the hospital's money. So it's a pretty cool place to work, and I've got some good friends there. You know, I really love the challenge of the work. I get to make important decisions, and I deal with some mind-bogglingly enormous stacks of data. I'm doing super well. I've worked for the past year there and I think anyone there you ask would agree I've provided I provide some touch touch top notch value. This this audio recording business is not as easy as it might seem. So they've got a discount gym where I get to be punished by the trainer a couple of times a week and it's near King's Park where I can go running at lunch. I'm not super fast, but I can last, and I've run a couple of marathons. Um, that was a couple of years ago now, but still, just saying. There's not many other people who can sort of just say that, you know. Hey, uh, I mean, as a proportion of world population, of course, if you were to ask out of a running club, there's probably a lot of people who would say. But anyway, so the sky, the sky at the moment looks like boiled porridge left too long on the stove. It's all grey and lumpy. Raindrops are each individually capable of carrying a couple of tadpoles for sure. I'd call it two tadpole rain. At least there's no wind to speak of. Still, this is why God invented cars, right? And trains. There's no chance I'm driving all the way to Perth. That's out of the question. Even at the best of times, it takes about an hour to get there from Mandra. And eight in the morning is not the best of times. Oh, Heidi will be meeting me before work for a coffee. 
She's pretty funny. She usually role plays the attentive 50s wife with a, here you are, dear. She doesn't say it like that, obviously, though it's just me. And a coy smile and laugh. You know, it's weird. It's a bit weird, but kind of funny. Uh, so I'll have been at work there at Medino for a year next week. I don't know that I've ever been that at one job for that long before. There's an opening for a new team in the in the MRI analytics unit. So I'm thinking that I might be able to lead that and the timing is pretty perfect. Everyone there really respects me and I have a lot of fun. I hope that didn't sound sarcastic. Hmm, it wasn't meant to. Anyway, today I've got a project meeting, then a run at lunch in the afternoon. I'll be picking tasks off the board. We use a kind of Kanban board broken into swim lanes and organised by sprints that last two weeks. Uh, the idea is to progress all your tasks from the left side of the board through the swim lanes to the right side of the board where it's marked as done. I just start at the top and pick the first task on the left, move it to the assigned swim line and put my name on it. When I've done then the task, I move to the test lane for a tester to pick up and start start back at the top, pick another task off. So it goes. It's a good system that lets everyone see where the project's up to and who's doing what. The project manager works with the business analyst to put together sprints, uh, which then get scheduled. Uh, I like the order of it. I like the flexibility of being able to push tasks up and down the board into or out of sprint. You know, if things had turned out slightly differently, I'd not be in IT at all. I originally did literature studies and psychology at uni. Yeah, I really, I do like books and I do love analysis of the commentary they have on society and, I, and how they relate to other people. But I love computers more. When they're being difficult, it is purely impersonal because they're doing what they're made to do. When people are being difficult, well, I don't know, maybe that's true of people too. Maybe they're just doing what they're made to do. Okay, okay, Heidi. I met her in high school. Uh, we shared uh, geography and maths classes. She helped me through maths and I helped her not appear so good at maths. Uh, anyway, her dad is a mathematician, uh, an actual professor. He's got a PhD, he's at McKinley Uni, so I guess some of it must have rubbed off on Heidi, she's pretty brainy. When I went to uni over east, we kept in touch through the various networks, you know, computer networks. She went to uni here locally and studied in the uh, Tanya McCulloch Hospital, which is a, it's a teaching hospital near here. It's uh, where she works now in an emergency department. We met up again when I moved back after working for a while over east after uni and coincidence now has me working at Medino where I regularly make site visits to the hospital to gather data and consult with the specialists. Heidi's been a great friend. Uh, she even helps me get dates and keeps me from embarrassing myself too badly. Anyway, I, I, I do embarrass myself badly though just in case you hadn't figured that one out. And... Uh, anyway, oh, Jesus, I've got to get now. I've, I've got to go. I'm off. Tonight, it's a Thursday. That so, uh, uh, means we're all meeting up at Rocket. Uh, look, I'll, I'll log in again tomorrow and record something there.
Oh man, was I dumb. I can't believe I talk so much crap. Oh geez, I'm just a little embarrassed to include these early journals, but they do set the scene for what what's coming. Heidi, yeah. oh that that was that was her I, I look um, well anyway these early journals set the scene so you know why I'm going ahead with with what I am and why I'm not I'm not backing down when I should be running like hell and hiding in a hole somewhere. Look, I guess that didn't work out for Saddam, though, did it? So, naive little bitch that I was, I kept up with the journals in my effort to learn, but I wasn't learning anything. Not then. Then I was more about creating an image of me, something other people would think was good. But hearing myself now, I... I'm pretty sure I failed at that. That's just, that's not working out. Anyway, enough of now. Uh, let's get back to back then so you know what I'm on about. Well, what can I say about today? It's bright, sunny, scorching hot. Um, well, last week was my one-year anniversary at Medino, so that was cool. And today, there was a morning tea and recognition for reaching the first-year milestone. Damn shame it wasn't for me. Derek. Derek joined Medino a week after me, and today there was a morning tea for him. He was promoted last week. Can you guess to what position? He's the new team lead of MRI Analytics. For real. I just don't get it. I've been there longer than him, and I'm for sure more team lead material than him. This is total slopping cesspits. The problem is they don't want someone with real smarts. No, they just want some gormless mouth breather who'll do their every bidding and shuffle into work like a good little vampire thrall. Ah, I met up with Heidi after her shift. She asked about my day, so I told her. This world doesn't reward talent or skill, just mediocrity. Maybe medi-no doesn't stand for medical. Maybe it's mediocrity-no. Uh, anyway, what was it she said to me? Oh, yeah, I I actually memorise it because it kind of sounds a bit funny. You're looking for something, but you don't know what it is or where to find it. You just don't seem to understand how the world works. What? Yeah, she didn't actually sound like that. I was, I'm mocking her. So, so oh, look, I understand. All right. It works like a square wheel. Wow, I had forgotten about that. Heidi didn't realise how right she was. I think I get it now. I am still looking for something. Uh, If I was dramatic, I'd say I'm looking for redemption. 
but really I think I'm just looking. Do I understand how the world works now? If I said yes, I think I'd just be demonstrating how little I do understand. I think I'll find out pretty soon how much understanding I have. Uh, anyway, anyway, here's the next journal. Things are about to pick up. Try to ignore my moaning and self-pity. There's going to be a bit of that. Keep your ears and mind open. See if you can spot what's happening. It's kind of like a where's Wally, only sadder and grander. Trains. I catch one every morning and another every evening. In the morning, I'm at the end of the line, so it's pretty easy to get on. Uh, In the evening, I'm at the other end. So, anyway, I watch people and so many have no plan or idea of where to go or what to do. Each evening, I get on. I'm in the back of the train. Almost no one else is. I know exactly which seat I'll sit in. Other people just randomly, they just walk in and continue and then suddenly look around and, oh, here's a seat, and they sit down. Work, work today was work. I got a coffee, checked my diary for the day, checked my email, read the morning bulletin, attended the project stand-up, I went for a run to King's Park under crystal blue skies without a breeze, I reviewed some documentation and finally went home. Whoa. The dead-eyed morons on the train this morning. Holy crap. I tried to get off, but some guy just stood there. The door opened, and he stood staring out for a while. I was I was about to push him out when his brain cells finally fired and he stepped off. But then he just stood in the doorway on the other side. Sigh. He finally moved on, blinking and looking around like he had no clue where he was going, as if he didn't do the same trip every day like the rest of us. This guy was just on the escalator leaving the platform as I was getting on. Some rude dick pushed past me and knocked his way up the escalator to just stop behind the brain-dead moron. Like the stupid was catching. This guy was... Well, he was a bit strange, actually. He was the only person wearing a hoodie with the hood up. Uh, He had jeans and boots and big heavy gloves. Anyway, I'm signing off to go binge whatever comes up next on Netflix. Okay, so that was was pretty depressing. Jeez, my life sucked. Uh, actually, it probably still does, just now it sucks differently. I'm going to return to this journal later once I've organised and posted some of these other journals, and I think at that point you're going to see things in a slightly different light. There's, there's so much I just want to uh, just spew up and tell you, but 
that's just going to be a complete waste of time. You'll think I'm crazy. You probably already suspect that I'm a little unhinged, you know, whatever. It's not going to matter soon enough. Heck, uh, I'm doing this. I'm doing this as a way of preserving this information. Someone's going to hear it and think that it's true. Everyone else is going to think it's just a work of fiction, and I I think it's going to be. It's, it would be pretty funny if after after this gets out, there's like some publisher out there trying to track me down to offer a book deal. Like that's look anyway. As funny as that is, I'm going to have to continue organising and I'm going to post the rest of this stuff. Serendipity. It's not just a 2001 rom-com starring John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. It's also a happy coincidence. I don't believe in fate. I hate to quote another movie. No fate but what we make. If you want an outcome... And you've got to be the outcome. You've got to see it, feel it, and know it to be true. You're most of the way there. But the thing is, you're competing with everyone else's belief in what should be. And so there is no true fate. But still, I can't shake the feeling some things are meant to be. Or that they're necessary in the grand chemical reaction that is reality. Or is it a collapsing quantum wave front? However you look at it, there are some things... It just appear to be required because of what has come before and what is yet to come. They're the missing puzzle pieces that fit so well, they just, they just are. Looking back like this, as I go through my journals, I can see the serendipity in my life. I've tried creating and living my vision of what is coming later tonight, but so is Shilpa, and I'm very much afraid she's got the greater experience and capacity. Look, I'll add this next journal in, and quit flapping my gums. I didn't get that team lead role. That's cool. And by cool, I mean it sucks dog's balls. There is another opportunity at work in the architecture and strategy division. That would be a considerable step up. It's more in line with what I want to do anyway. In the meantime, I'm going to make some side bucks. I heard about reselling estate sale stuff from various places on the net. I think it sounds like fun. It's kind of like archaeology. I'll be digging up old things left behind, and they each tell a story. Except hopefully the story is ka-ching. Look, I'm doing it today, uh, today being Saturday. And there are several sales on, each with some old, valuable-looking stuff. Really, though, I have no idea what is and what isn't valuable. I just figure I'll start off buying whatever looks good and seems a reasonable price. From there, I'll learn pretty quickly what does and doesn't sell and what a good price is. I've got to start somewhere. Look, it's going to be a hot, dry and dusty day today, with easterly winds blowing in the heat and dust from inland. Now, I invited Heidi, but she's going away to see her uh, what? Going away to see her big sister and her new niece. She asked me if going to the sale was so important uh, or if I could consider coming along the trip with her to see sis. Like I would give up some sweet money-making scheme to visit her sister. Anyway, so I'm off to the sale. When I brought this idea up with her, Heidi was all for it and now I actually set a date to hit the auctions and she's flaked out. Look, she can be a little self-absorbed at times without the awareness that things are happening to other people. 
Some people make real money doing this. There's this one guy who averages just about $1,000 a week reselling estate sale items on eBay. Yeah, yeah, she was flaky and self-absorbed. I was such a bonehead. In case you can't guess, I didn't make my fortune reselling dead folk stuff. I didn't make my fortune at all, in fact. I'm more or less just as broke now as I was then. If I live long enough, that'll change. But I don't like my chances. I also don't entirely know if there's a business opportunity to be had. Oh well. I'm looking at what must be the most Scooby-Doo house of all time. Even the bright gold sunlight is struggling to penetrate the heavy canopy of ancient gums standing guard around this old Queen Anne Gothic style mansion. It's only on the medium to small size compared to the contemporary mansions the rest of the suburb, but its drab colour and perpetual shade lends it you know, a massive feel. If I see a harpsichord in the parlour, I'll just freak. I imagine a house like this has a parlour, and a sitting room, and a drawing room, and so on. It probably has a basement, uh, which is next to unheard of in Australia. Oh look, there's a little sign on the letterbox indicating the auction is on today, so I'll go in. If this is the last journal I record, you'll know I was taken by the spirit that haunts the house. Wow, it's just as grim inside. Holy moly, there's like five heavy deadbolts on the door. Uh, inside is dim thanks to the heavy, what are they? Velvet drapes over the windows. Oh, and that's, oh, that's a bit dire. Looks like bleach stains in patches on the carpet at the base of the stairs and around the entrance. I can assume a comedy accident involving cleaning products? I think that would be best. Okay, I'm going into the auction room. Uh, no harpsichord. Out. Well, the auction came and went. I had a quick glance over the table. Heavy with junk for sale. There were old tools, sewing equipment, a pile of five old scabby looking books bound in leather wooden brass. If I had to describe them I'd call them shabby eldritch style. They seemed to be memoirs or collections of writings. One of them reminded me of the Voynich manuscript. It's all drawings and symbols with indecipherable script. They look like, to put it kindly, junk. But next to them was a very cool-looking candelabra. All patina and all wax from the four candle holders. It, on the other hand, looks awesome, old, and worth something. There was another table set aside for items removed from the sale. This included some of the creepiest pictures you'd care to look at. And each of the pictures was the same guy, with smooth, pale skin and slick back black hair. It may as well have been a time-lapse. Each photo looked like he was absolutely motionless while the scene around him changed. I like to think it was an art piece and not what passed for this guy's happy snaps. The auction itself went smoothly. There were about 10 people there. None of them looked particularly comfortable or hopeful. The books came up for sale and I immediately noticed the reaction in the room. It was as if a 
cold air had spilled across the room, and everyone except me felt it. The others in the room shivered or recoiled. Mm, bit dramatic, really. The estate agent watched with interest, and then really eyeballed me. Like he really wanted me to notice him. So the books sitting on the table certainly looked impressive, heavy and worn, but in my estimate, they were too worn, and I can't imagine anyone wanting a bunch of mouldy old books that look straight out of a 50s horror movie. You'd see Vincent Price walking around carrying one. The books started at $500 and stayed there. Even the auctioneer didn't seem keen on them. I just couldn't wait to see what the candelabra would bring. Oops, I got the candelabra $15, an absolute steal. But maybe I should have actually, I don't know, picked it up off the table before getting excited. I went up and paid the money to the cashier, or rather I waved my card over their phone until it blipped. I picked up the candelabra, and yes, it was very light. Too light to be iron, or silver, or anything that might be anything other than tin or aluminium. It was a cheap trinket. But I think it looks good on my dining table. Adds a sense of occasion to my breakfast alone. But on the way out, oh, things changed then. I pretty much turned away from the table and walked straight into what could arguably be the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life. We stood for a moment looking at each other, unsure of which way to step to avoid walking into the other. Uh, she was tall for a woman, able to look me directly in the eye. Not that I'm especially tall myself, but still. She had shoulder-length blonde hair, a straight-cut fringe. She just had the most uh, statuesque face and delicate sculpted body. It was just a second standing there before she looked around the room and sighed, clearly disappointed in having missed the auction. She turned and left while I stood there holding this stupid tin candle holder. The estate agent stepped in front of me then, filling the empty space left by this departing goddess. Talk about contrasts. This guy was a little shorter than me, dark hair, creased face, with bags under his eyes. He said, and I'll try to imitate his tone. I couldn't help but notice your interest in the collection of journals and memoirs. Would you like to enter an offer? No thanks, they aren't what I'm looking for, but thank you. Really, I'm pretty sure I don't have the money to buy a bunch of old books that look like they need restoration work before they could be sold, and even then... Who'd want to buy such books? You see, fate, serendipity, I pretty much wasted my time trying to achieve something that others were also trying to achieve. Sometimes your will wins out, and other times you're just not with it, and someone else is. In this case... No one got the goods, and I left with a candelabra made of tin, as it turns out. Old and kind of cool looking, but of no material value. I'm looking at it now on my dining table. It looks well gothic, and I've been thinking of getting a black tablecloth to go under it. I'd probably spook anyone I brought home, as if they wouldn't have been before the candelabra. Happy, fateful coincidence. You'll see soon.
Well, I'm feeling pretty good about this position in the architecture team. It's a bit of a step up for me, but I know I'm worth it. How hard can it be? I already do a lot of architecture stuff and rest is just some diagrams and talking too much. I just got off the phone to the estate agent for the weekend. He's been trying to flog those old journals and memoirs. No one wants them, it seems. Well, I'll be up for a good pay rise soon. I wouldn't be surprised if I was called in today for good news. Maybe I'll get a morning tea or a cake or something. So I bought the stupid books. They'll go with the candelabra and look all old and spooky. You never know, they may be interesting to read. Ah, the boss has just waved me over to his office. This is it. I'm moving up in the world now. What the absolute... Apparently, I'm not a team player. Unreliable and don't get enough done. I I work harder than 90% of the guys and they get all the credit. I was given the option to leave today and they'd pay out my notice period. So keen to get rid of me, they didn't even want me to train up my replacement. I just, I just bought those stupid books too. Five hundred bucks for a pile of brass, bound leather, and wood. That's what generosity gets you, garbage. I'll have plenty of time to read them though. Now, what's this one? Let me see. Catalogue of the various lost denizens of the old world. And this one, Esoterica of Floribarology. That second one looks like a rough translation from... I have no idea what that script is. Perhaps some old Middle European text. I have no idea what I'm going to do now. Man, I remember how much that day sucked. I think it was fate. I really was rubbish at my job. And I really wasn't. A team player. Now I think about it and think of how I treated people. Nah. Still, it was the best thing that could happen. It wasn't the lowest point in my recent history. And in many ways, I wish I was back then. I thought the worst thing that could happen was losing my job. It painted me as incompetent and made me so mad it made me confront the possibility that what I thought I knew about the world and myself, I sure was wrong. Still probably am, but I think I'm more aware of the enormity of what I don't know and don't understand. I don't think it's going to matter much. What did Heidi say to me? You're looking for something, but you don't know what it is or where to find it. You just don't seem to understand how the world works. I don't think she meant quite what I'm talking about, but the words still stick. Well, here we come to the start of the turning point of my life. This is my pivot, my watershed, where it could have fallen one way or the other. It's a sliding doors moment, I suppose. Look, I'm going to include this first journal to set the scene a little. I, I'm, I'm still pretty torn up about getting fired. Man, I, I should have rejoiced in being freed, in getting the chance to figure my crap out. Or maybe that's what I should be doing now instead of constantly reminding myself and you, my pleasant listener, of my impending doom. Maybe... Well, maybe this is the true freedom. And I had... Oh, Jesus. I had to confront my future and destiny. 
Look, how is it any different to any other day? I mean, you take your life in your hands every time you walk out the door. I mean, heck, even if you just lay in bed, how is this imagined death any worse than being run over by a truck? Perhaps just being run over by a truck or struck by lightning or crushed by a rampaging elephant are threats that we just dismiss as just too unlikely. Or maybe we face them so many times that we just forget about it. The number of times a rampaging elephant has nearly hit me. I just don't think about it anymore. Well, anyway, here is the start of my rise and fall. Or maybe it's both. These books are so dumb. They're total drivel. And I reckon the author must have thought he was being super clever and scary or, or weird. Ooh. I mean, just collecting was overly dramatic. It was like it was an orchestrated film. I mean, I decided to take the train, even those uh, great big black clouds of threatening thunderstorms. And it's just, just driving that far is just such a pain. It's much easier to sit on the train and just play games on my laptop. Of course, when I tried to get off at Perth Underground to switch lines, guess who was there? That same moron from the other day who was dithering at the door. I went, get out or stay on, just make the decision. Am I the only human on earth able to think for himself? Anyway, I finally got off and dodged around some lunatic wearing a beanie, a scarf and blacked out ski goggles. I walked about a half hour in the wrong direction. Like, seriously? Yeah. It turns out I'm easily distracted by cranks. Anyway, I finally got to the house with evening closing in, though it was pretty hard to tell considering the heavy layer of cloud that felt like a a low ceiling I was going to bump my head into all day. In that gloomy, shadowless light, the old Queen Anne house looked pretty grim. I mean, I could see the heavy velvet curtains were still drawn shut. At least I didn't have to deal with the gate. It was thrown open. Looked like it had been kicked open. Probably just someone impatient getting their worthless bits of crap. Anyway, the door was a little open. uh, As in, like, you know, when is a door not a door? When it's ajar. So just inside, past the old bleach stains on the entry carpet, uh, um, there was like a little note on the table. It said, here are the books. Take them. Sorry, won't be able to see them leave. This is the last of it. I'm done. It's a strange way to say, please take the books. So I've got no idea where the guy was. Uh, he, he might have been downstairs in the basement. It's like I heard a, a creaking noise from down there. So I, you know, I assume it was the basement. It certainly came from under the floor. It sounded like an old tire swing hanging from a tree there was sort of a, a creak and then it went quiet another creak distinct sort of sing swinging sound anyway i piled the books into the little wheelie suitcase i brought with me and just to test my nerves there's this massive crash of thunder i thought the world was coming to an end so anyway i i freaking hightail out of there in pretty good order I'd already transferred my money, uh, so I had the books. Didn't want to get caught in the storm. I left pretty quickly. That's you know, that's the only reason I left quickly, of course, just because I, I didn't want to get wet. So I made it back to the train okay, but my walk from the train back to my car was like going for a swim. 
when the rain absolutely hammered down. Of course I didn't take an umbrella because, ooh, I won't need that. It'll, it'll just get in the way. Oh, I don't like thinking back to that house. Given the contents of the book, I see it in a very different way. I don't think that estate agent is going to be doing any more sales. And I'm pretty sure I wasn't alone in that house. There's no way of knowing if the house was everything it seemed because I am not going back there. Look, anyway, I'll get to the journal that starts to unravel things a bit. I mean, in part, it unravels my sanity a little. Look, this is going to give you a taste of what I'm up against and maybe, just maybe, you'll start to see what I'm I'm going to do and why I'm going ahead. Well, hopefully this podcast strikes home for someone and isn't just taken as fanciful fiction. Okay, well, the rain is really pissing down out there. So for tonight's edition... I thought I'd read to you a lovely passage from one of my new old books. It's called Catalogue of the Various Lost Denizens of the Old World and is written by David Geldstein in 1823. <clears throat> my, my best narration voice. October 24, 1820. I arrived in a small village I'm yet to discover the name of just afternoon. I was led here by news that three people had been accused of being ensorcelled by the power of a vampire. The three were beheaded, staked and burned along with a corpse that had been dug up. Evidently, such things are common in these parts of Romania, and bodies are often exhumed and examined some years after burial to inspect for signs of vampirism. My experience of the children of Lilith has been that they are not so clumsy as to simply lay about in their coffin waiting to be dug up. I would also question how this Zaluka managed to leave the grave to perform the ensorcelment if they were still buried under feet of earth. I have other thoughts on this case. The prior week, one Arnold Paole, I think that's how you pronounce it, who knows. The prior week, one Arnold Paole, an ex-soldier turned farmer, died while haying. He'd been suffering a drawn-out illness preceding his death. He was described as being listless, pale, glassy-eyed, and slow of wit. He would stand in the threshold of doors, appearing undecided before moving through. This behaviour is most often associated with victims of a Maroi. A vampire, yes, but not like the romances would have it. As Voltaire wrote in his Philosophical Dictionary, These vampires were corpses who went out of their graves at night to suck the blood of the living, either at their throats or stomachs, after which they returned to their cemeteries. The persons so sucked waned, grew pale, and fell into consumption, while the sucking corpses grew fat, got rosy, and enjoyed an excellent appetite. It was in Poland, Hungary, Silesia, Moravia, Austria, and Lorraine that the dead made this good cheer. It is a misconception that all vampires were Lilith's kin. These Maroi, the soulless revenants, can also be described as a Luca or vampire, but 
Though they also subsist on the essence of man, they are all but mindless in their pursuit of life's flame. The three accused were likely innocent of the murders they were executed for, though doubtless they were less than stellar members of their local community, and were killed more out of a lack of popularity than any real guilt. Tonight, I will lay awake and attempt to ambush the Maroi hunting this town. Sorry, haunting this town. You'd think I'd be able to read a bit better, wouldn't you? Uh, let's see, where was I? Arnold Paole is survived by a younger brother who will now surely be the next victim, if the feeding has not already begun. Maroi tend to be drawn to bloodlines. They often seek out their own families or families they were close to when alive and work their way through the family tree. I would need to also take certain precautions with Arnold's grave to ensure he doesn't rise as a spectre to haunt the village as sometimes happens with victims of Maroi. The safest way to dispatch a Maroi is find its nesting ground, often near the cemetery they were buried in, and pull it into the light of the day. This is best done in the fullness of day, but even the waning light of the sunset will do. While the sun is out, the Maroi enters a deep sleep state, making them indistinguishable from a corpse. In this state, in this state, what am I? Okay, <clears throat> back to being serious, David Gildstein. In this state, they are no threat at all and completely vulnerable. The sun will burn them rapidly and completely. Failing that, they can be staked with silver or simply decapitated and burned. However, it is important to burn them completely as any uncharred remains can house their undead spirit and allow them to continue their evil work. It is fortunate they are not clever enough to purposefully remove some portion of themselves to hide in a separate vault. For those that follow me and read this, which I guess is me, I will add some caution here about the known powers of a Maroi. Oh goody, I get to find out what this guy reckons uh, these Maroi were up to, eh? Okay. They can fly. The force that usually binds a body of the earth. Sorry, again, I, I've got a dreadful time reading. The force that usually binds a body to the earth and sticks us to the ground doesn't seem to apply to the Maroi, who are capable of flight like a feather on a breeze. They won't swoop and dive like a bird, but you can be sure that walls or chasms are no barrier to them. They are capable of merging with shadows to become invisible. A maroi that steps into darkness will no longer register on your eye. It is as if the unnatural form doesn't interact with light in the usual fashion. Likewise, they don't appear in mirrors except as faint blurs, and it is speculated they will not appear on photographic medium. I have found, looking through a Star of David, or down the length of a crucifix, will reveal them, however. I have heard no compelling evidence to support this, but I also believe they cannot hide within a church or a holy sanctuary, though they can enter. The last power that I know of, and have confirmed from prior encounters, is the Maroi's chill touch. To be grasped by a Maroi is to be gripped by death itself. The chill of their hands spreads unnatural numbness through your limbs and snatches the breath from your lungs. When dealing with the Maroi tonight, I will be wearing heavy leathers with thick wool underneath, 
This won't spare me if the Maroi is determined, but they lack the strength they had in life, and if I keep my wits about me, I should have enough time to break contact and escape. My next journal entry will detail my success, or will be blank if I fail. Well, looks like Davo was successful, because this book goes on in the same way for quite a while. I mean, this this uh, entry here this is pretty much a good example of the sort of drivel in these books. I mean, it's kind of interesting, but it's a fair old nonsense. I mean, I see listless, glassy-eyed shufflers pause in doorways every day on the train. I mean, there's that one guy... Hmm. And the one following him all wrapped up. Uh, nah, come on. Yeah, that's it. That's how Mass Hysteria starts. Yeah, Maroi. How's I supposed to react? This is probably the part where you roll your eyes and figure this podcast is just some second-rate attempt at the War of the Worlds broadcast. I know how you feel. I felt the same way too. But I found it easier to stomach over time. You'll see. There are so many entries in those books I've got. I read out the journal pages that talk about what the author called a Maroi, but even in that entry, he talked about Aluka and Children of Lilith. He wrote so matter-of-fact about it, it's like it's something we should just know about, but we don't, or at least not anymore. We've convinced ourselves that we don't need to know this stuff anymore, and it's just superstition, not a part of our modern science-bound world. The problem is most people simply don't understand what this thing we call science is. What it isn't. It's not an exclusionary world with walls and distinct lines. No. Science is nothing more than our currently popular way of learning about and understanding reality. It isn't reality in and of itself. So if someone observes a Maroi, then by definition, a Maroi is within science's realm. Observation and measurement are cornerstones. I know we can measure and observe Maroi and any number of other creatures and phenomena that the layperson would say was outside of science. But you see, that isn't what science is. It's nothing more than a way to catalogue, describe and explain what we see and make predictions about things we don't see but expect to find. Anyway, I'm ranting and you probably still don't get what I'm getting at. Or maybe I don't know what I'm talking about anyway. I've got plenty of reason to have scattered thoughts. Here. Listen. Today was my last day at work. It was a short day, at least. I caught up with Heidi at the cafe as usual. But I keep doing that now, I don't work nearby. She spoke about how cute her little niece was, how her sister was doing well. And she told me, It would have been great if you'd agreed to come along. Gwen asked after you, and you'd have loved little Lillian. I don't know what she meant by if I'd agreed to come along. I don't think she actually invited me, did she? Why would she want me to go see her family for a weekend away? So I got to work, and everyone just kept doing their thing. A couple guys wished me good luck as I packed all my stuff into a bag and left. 
No one invited me for a coffee. No cake. Was I that bad to be around? Smart. Funny. Reliable friend. Ah, oh, forget them. Even trying to get on this train was a bummer. I got stuck behind my old friend, the listless shuffler again. We must have synchronized schedules. As usual, I tried to get on, but he stopped in the doorway, undecided and confused. I tried to catch his eye when he sat down, but he just looked past me with glassy, vacant eyes. I wasn't the only one put out either, so don't go thinking it's just me being impatient or rude. Plenty of other people pushed past and sighed or tutted and shook their heads. Another guy got on after me. He's sitting a few seats down the carriage from me now, just across from old Glacier. He's wearing a hoodie with a scarf wrapped tightly around the outside of his hood. His eyes are hidden behind mirror shades, not like aviators. He's wearing heavy canvas and leather work pants, like you might see in a machine shop. Steel caps. He's wearing leather gloves. I'm not the only person to notice this guy either. But he's a bit scary looking. No, not massive. The bulk of his clothes and the oddity of it all has given me that feeling he's armoured. He must be the same guy I've seen several times before. Near the, um... I have to admit, he looks like a Moroi victim as described in that book. What if the moron is actually a victim of a Moroi being drawn each evening to the lair of the vampire, to be drained slowly but surely of his life's essence? The other guy is the vampire... No, that doesn't fit. Amroy is asleep during the day, only waking at sunset. The sun won't set for another half hour yet. Oh, I know. The other guy is David Kelstein himself. Now, over 200 years old and still hunting a Luca, he sustains himself by drinking the blood of the vampire as he kills it. Or, he's mentally atypical and just finds great comfort in being covered from head to toe. I mean, is he seeing me get on with the other guy? I wonder if we're connected. You're getting off here. Ah, oh, stuff it. What else do I have to do? I'm following this guy to see the Maroi. <laughs> it hasn't been too hard keeping up with this guy. Uh, I'll call him Vic. Short for, uh, short for victim. He's kind of wandering along the footpath, heading east, away from the ocean. He took a right-hand turn into McDougal Street. Uh, it doesn't seem to be heading to a cemetery. There aren't any around here, at least not in walking distance. And the sun is just starting to set. Uh, it's hitting the horizon just to the right. What's that? Oh, I haven't been here before. Uh, looks like a park of some kind. There's, there's a sign. Yeah, just a bit further. Yep, Vic is walking into the car park and heading to the footpath that leads deeper in, into um, uh, Neil McDougal Park. I oh, wonder who he was. Okay, uh, we're walking along a path under trees. The shadows are pretty long here and there's only glimpses of the sun between the trees. There's a lake or, I guess, um, well, it's not big enough to be a lake, so a pond. It's fairly big. Uh, he's taken a left behind some trees in the corner of the pond. Whoa, he's, he's just around the corner of a clump of trees, about 20 or 30 meters away. There's a brick building there, like a pump house or maybe a utility shed, but it's, um, it's up against the pond. It's all brick with only small slits with obscured and barred windows up high. 
The sun is throwing deep shadows around here since it's setting behind the shed. Vicky is standing just outside the growing shadow of the shack. Is this, is this really happening? Oh crap! Door's opening! Someone is coming in. What the? Oh crap! Crap! Oh, I've got to get a view of this. Just, uh, he's not showing up on the screen. I can I can see his pale, bald, ugly guy. There's something messed up about his face, like heavy creases around his eyes and mouth. It's too far to make out, but he, he isn't. Oh, crap! He isn't touching the ground. He's floating. I'm not making this. I'm not making this up. I can't get a photo of him. Oh, he's not. He's not showing up on my camera. Oh, the light sucks, but this guy's freaking floating. He's drifting like a leaf on a breeze. The shadow of the shed is creeping closer to Vic. So is, oh god, so is it. Maroy. No way this is real. Vic is just standing there, swaying slightly. The Maroy is monstrous. That's what, that's what his face looks like. Like that old Nosferatu movie. That pointed ears and deep creases around the mouth and his eyes are oh, wrong. Oh, I feel, I feel sick. The guy following Vic on the train has just stepped out from the other side of the shed. It's all rugged up. He's got a bloody spear gun. Holy crap. The boy's just been skewered and, and the rugged up guys are hauling him hand over hand using the cable attached to the spear. Whoa. The boy just crossed the shadow into the last dying light of the setting sun and it's like exploding in a fire. It's just like flash paper. Oh, the spear just dropped to the ground and the and we're always gone. It's just some ash drifting in the air. Oh, Vic seemed to wake up. Oh, oh gross, he's chucking. The spear gunner is hoofing it back around the other side of the pond. No, it's a, it, frick, it's a lake. Vic's walking quickly now. I, I can't even. I, I just can't. All, all this time, I, I just saw you some idiot or something. I, oh god, I got, I gotta go. Keeping the sun before it's all gone. That messed me up bad. I ran all the way back to the train station, jumped on the next train. I remember sitting there stunned. The woman sitting next to me, she was leafing through some handwritten study notes. She must have been studying forensic criminology or something because her notes were all about different blood spatter patterns and the factors that influence the way blood drips and lands on different surfaces. I remember so vividly because it was such a bizarre connection to what I just witnessed. Suffice to say, I didn't sleep well that night. I haven't slept well in a while, actually. That woman on the train studying blood spatter... Oh. Do more people know about this other side of reality than I think? Do they just keep it quiet? Well, that's why I'm producing this. Next journal. Fuck my life. I can't get that guy burning up like that out of my head. I remember seeing the spear stick in his chest. It's like, thwack! Just slid in there like you stick a fork into a melon in a fruit salad. He didn't flinch. The spear went in and he just turned to look at the guy who shot it. 
It wasn't until he was being dragged towards the edge of the shadow that he screamed. And then he burst into flame. The sun just kissed his pale head and boom, he went up in a flash. Totally burned up in just a second or two. Like touch paper. Or what I think touch paper acts like. That thing must have been Maroy. These books, they're written as factual accounts and encyclopedia entries. They're about stuff that can't exist. But that wasn't some hidden camera show I was watching. That, that um, Maroy drifted out of that shed like a leaf on a breeze. It was like he was not affected by gravity, like normal matter. And when he was hit by sunlight, uh, could he be made of exotic matter from another universe or something? I'm just making it up at this point. I think I have to read those books. I don't know that I want to, but I need to. I mean, if Maroy are real, then what about vampires, ghouls, werewolves, goblins and trolls for crying out loud? Heidi was absolutely spot on when she said, I don't know how the world works. I don't think any of us do. Except maybe that, oh, that um, vampire hunter? Why was he dressed in such all-covering heavy clothes? Good old Davo in 1823 mentioned that the touch of a Maroi can drain life. Was the vampire hunter essentially wearing armour? I don't know. I think I need to find out. But was he seeking protection from the Maroi, or did he need protection from the sun himself? Well, there's so many questions and just no answers. I checked my phone again. And all I've got are photos of a brick shed at sunset. Nice photo, except there's supposed to be a spooky dude floating in them. Just a slight blur where he should be. It certainly explains why there's no evidence. I'm not sure that reading more of those books was the best decision of my life, but I think it was a necessary one. Up to that point, I was a drifting garbage fire rather than a real person. But learning all that stuff hasn't exactly led me to a life of joy and leisure I thought it would. I had fun for sure. But still, here I am sorting my journals into a podcast that will be auto-uploaded and distributed in parts from different proxy servers around the world in an effort to ensure this all gets out. I don't know if there's specifically anyone or anything actively trying to stop me but I'm sure it's something that could be true. Maybe tomorrow I'll be able to come back home and cancel a series. I honestly don't know if I want to live past the night. But I can't forget... I can't forget Heidi and what happened. I have to at least... what? Make up for that? Is that a thing? Redemption? Like, like in the movies? Can it even be done? Uh, I would get this next journal sorted. You heard about Maroi and how they can be killed. Well, I made a journal entry about vampires. Yeah, the more classic blood-drinking variety. Yeah, and werewolves. Uh, I think, I think these are the first two monsters everyone always thinks about when we think about monsters. The truth is, vampires and werewolves are extremely rare. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the truth. Though maybe once they were more common, you know, before modern communications and transport enabled us to coordinate better and kind of shrunk the world a bit, if you like. Uh, maybe they've only 
ever been known really in folklore. But anyway, uh, vampires. So the short version, they don't have sparkly skin and they aren't all that pleasant. It might be possible to find a good vampire if you could call it that. But I think their essence is of corruption and death, which tends to be counter to what we think of as good. Well, there's a whole there's a whole line of philosophy I could go down re- regarding relativism, maximal social utility, and so on that would let me justify just about any depravity as good under a certain lens. But yeah, I just don't subscribe to that really. Well, I believe good is as good does at the time it is done. Yeah, you can't reliably predict the future. So any action you take now based on an idea that it's for some distant good is a lie. In fact, you'll probably find that anyone who's saying that they're doing doing something or other, you know, for the greater good, you'll probably almost always find out that they somehow lump themselves into the greater good and everyone else into what has to be sacrificed for that good. And you just don't know what's going to come of your actions in the long term. So you have to judge what to do at the moment you have to do it. Anything else is just rationalization and apology. Okay, so here's something I found in catalogue of the various lost denizens of the old world written by our good old friend David Gilstein. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a transcript from an interview or a confession or just a short story written by an aspiring horror author. It seems to describe a Dracula vampire. Uh, there, there we go. That's my terminology. This is a story about a Dracula. Given it was recorded by this David Geldstein, I suspect it may have some truth in it, no matter how ridiculous it may seem. I'll have a little fun with it. Uh, either that or I'll um, I don't know, spiral into madness and hide my wardrobe. I am recording this in my wardrobe. So here goes. <clears throat> Remember, this is written by a, uh, a French dude. I used to think my being was hollow and empty. I used to mop about in dark places full of the irredeemable sadness of the blackened soul. No, look, I can't keep that up. <laughs> Sorry to any anyone who's French. Uh, that was terrible. I'll just go ahead in my normal voice because I think that's probably good enough. I used to think my being was hollow and empty. I used to mope about in dark places full of the irredeemable sadness of the blackened soul. I used to be a whiny little bitch. How has that changed? In one short night that lasted the entirety of my life, my eyes were opened to the true tragedy. I had wasted what time I had. You are de vivre, I said to the young woman cowering in the corner of my room. It means love of life. She asked what I was going to do with her. The tremble in her voice matched the tremble in her lower lip. I turned my back to her and stared at the door. The room we were in had a bed, a nightstand, and through an arch, a bench with bowl and jug of water. The one window next to the door faced east. Despite the uneven and blurred glass, it would have an unobstructed view of the rising sun in a couple of hours. It was perfect. The woman shifted, 
Her heart beat fierce in my ears, her blood warm and tantalizing, like hot chicken soup on a winter's day. I told her I would do nothing. Nothing to her. She asked if I would let her go. Huh. I shook my head and turned to face her. That wasn't up to me. It would come down to you obeying my command, I told her. Her pulse jumped and her throat constricted as she swallowed. I didn't want to scare her too much, so I let the corners of my mouth lift. I'll tell you a little about me, about what is going on here, I said, taking a seat on the bed, leaning forward with my elbows on my knees. I was once like you. I bought into the romance and mystique of the vampire. I read the poems and ballads, felt my heart soar in sympathy with the wretched girl and her vampire lover. It seemed that my life meant nothing if I couldn't devote it to someone whose heart was as empty as mine. I even wrote vomit-inducing poetry and signed it with a drop of my blood. The girl bit her lip to still his trembling. Her heart slowed a little as I continued. The hall I found you? I asked and she nodded. I was there doing the same ridiculous things you were. Can you believe I'm actually less pale now than I was then? I shook my head with the memory. I was approached by a beautiful man. He had thin, bright red lips and haunting eyes so deep, I swear I saw stars sparkling in them. He spun such wonderful images of darkness lit by bright blooms of life that I immediately fell in love with him. The woman's eyes widened, and I heard her take a sharp breath in, as if she was going to ask a question. No, I'm not inclined to men. I leant back, my palms pressed against the mattress. You'll see what I mean when you meet him. I sat for a time, maybe a minute or two, staring at the wall above her head, remembering. He made me, I said into the silence. He took me back to a room not unlike this one. I waved one hand about the small room. I didn't think he really was a vampire, the same as you don't think I am. In my mind, he was a step further in the same fantasy you hold. He had somehow managed to bridge the gap between wishing for the peace of figurative death and achieving it. I was wrong, and so are you. I lowered my eyes to lock onto hers. Her nervous twitching ceased, and the slight slackening of her features told me I had her mesmerized. I'd be able to offer suggestions to her in this state. Get her to do just about anything. She wouldn't break any of her strongly held morals, but everything up until then. I broke the connection. She would be useless acting on my suggestion. He would sense it. Suffice to say, he turned me. I died that night just a week ago. Now I'm sitting here with my first victim. You're my initiation, my first taste of untainted human blood. The girl took a deep breath and held her delicate white hand over her mouth, her eyes wide. She wouldn't scream. I told her not to. The sweet aroma of fear laced the room like the delicate perfume of the star jasmine. I chuckled at the flashback to my indescribably bad poetry. I won't be a full vampire until I drink your blood. I imagine it to have something to do with leaving the last vestiges of my humanity behind, 
to perform the taboo act of cannibalism. Black streaks ran with her tears down her cheeks. It wasn't that long ago that I would have had empathy with this girl. But where there used to be emotion, it was just a cold feeling in my gut. I used to think I was empty, but that empty feeling was my heart and mind conspiring to keep me numb from the magnitude of what I felt. I watched her until she got control of herself again. She was perfect. Such self-control and poise. I picked up the wooden box behind me on the bed and proffered it to her. Take it. Open it. Her hand shook as she wrapped her fingers about the rich brown case. When she opened it, she paused and flicked her eyes up to me. I nodded. She picked up the small steel crucifix and turned it in her hands. My sire will be along shortly to feed, to join me in draining you. The girl's hands froze and her eyes fixed onto me. The fear scent grew. She must have been wondering if I had given her the crucifix to save her, or so she could say her final prayers. If instead of feeding on you, I drink his blood, if I drain him completely until he is nothing but a withered husk. I pursed my lips and watched her squirm before I continued. If I do that, I will kill the beast growing within me, and when I greet the sun, I will be human once more. I need you to help me do that. Her fear dropped. I almost wanted to frighten her again, to breathe that heady fragrance, but I needed her in command of her senses. He will come, and I will offer him the first bite, as is custom, or so I have been told. You, I said as I jabbed a slender finger toward her head, you will press that crucifix against his head. It will stun him, and that is all I need you to do. She started breathing more easily, her eyes falling to the small bit of steel in her hands. I was glad she couldn't detect my lies, like my sire could. We sat for another twenty minutes, maybe thirty, before the door opened and a man stepped in. He moved with such grace and exquisite confidence, it was hard not to stare. It appeared that his shadow moved a split second after him, adding to the dramatic and beautiful aura that draped him like a cloak. The girl noticed too. She looked at me, then back to my master. Now, she understood what I had meant when I said I had fallen in love with him. He turned his gaze on me, and it was as if I was staring down a tube. I could see only his face. All else was blurred and distorted. As he turned to look at my victim, the effect dropped, and I could see and think clearly again. Master, I said, I hope she meets with your approval. He tilted his head, then let his eyes swivel the rest of the way. The edge of his mouth lifted, revealing needle-sharp fang. I concentrated only on the smell of the girl, the sound of her racing heart. If I let any thought of betrayal into my mind, he would detect it. He bent forward, grabbed her hair, and dragged her up the wall until she stood with her neck arched back, her eyes straining to retain contact with my master. I moved in closer. She wasn't going to do it. I had to take action, but quickly, or he'd realise. My sire's neck was so close to me. I could see the veins beneath his skin. I opened my mouth, pulled my lips back. My master turned to look at me with a frown. I seized up, transfixed 
as if by icicles. He'd figured out I was tricking him. You can wait your turn like a good puppy, he said, then turned back to the girl's neck. With his eyes off her, she had managed to get the crucifix out and up. When he turned back, she pushed the steel cross onto his forehead. She grinned in victory. For a couple of seconds, my sire stood staring at her. It was then that she realized I had lied to her. His hand clenched her hair as he pulled back and snarled. Instead of the stately, calm feeding he had begun, his fury at the girl's audacity launched him into a berserk frenzy. In his blood rage, he paid no notice to the change in my posture. He missed the telltale scent of betrayal. My paws oozed like black mud. I threw myself on him, the hot lure of the girl's blood driving me. At first he ignored me. Once my fangs sank deep into his beautiful porcelain neck, he must have realized what was happening, but it was too late. A vampire's bite induces a kind of ecstasy, a release of worry and a joy born of inevitable finality. Hot crimson life gushed into my mouth and I drank. I sucked until there was nothing left. My master's neck withered and crumbled beneath my thirsty lips. I pulled back, satisfied, and watched as the girl lay disheveled and bloody beneath a human-shaped ash pile. Her throat irrevocably torn, she gazed at me with wide, black-rimmed eyes, an accusation that reached into me and crushed something. I fell back on the bed and stared at the ceiling, breathing heavily, eyes burning. I must have lain there for another half an hour, because when I decided to move, the first pink fingers of dawn were creeping across the sky. I looked at my hands, at the blood covering my pants. This was the moment of truth. Was the guilt and pain I felt a sign that I'd regained my humanity? Or was that impossible considering what I had done? I looked at the dead girl, her features locked in an expression somewhere between pain and joy. Joie de vivre, I said to her still form. I wanted to live. I needed to see the sun rise. Pulling back the curtains, I stood marvelling at the orange cast the low-lying clouds had taken. I returned to sit on the bed, and stared at the window. That's where I am now, talking with you. I'm watching the orange sky turn pink, setting the wispy gauze curtains aflame, like the gates to hell. Blood was like a door, a portal to undeath, and now the window glows red. Another door, but I don't know where it leads. It can't be worse than where I am now. Yeah, vamps. I can hear your blood, smell you, intuit your intention. They're strong, charming. Like, I've read more about them since then. Here's the catch. The sun can burn them, but not kill them. If they fully cover up, they can get about on a cloudy day. Uh, not so likely here in Western Australia, but I'd imagine there'd be places in Europe and America where they could get away with it. I don't know about this guy's take on being turned uh, and returning to humanity. I've read various conf you know, conflicting stories about all of that. Mr. Geldstein refers to the Aluka, who are the children of Lilith. Uh, Lilith was 
what, what the first woman I don't know it depends on on which part of the um, near Bible and, and Judaic tradition you look at the children of Lilith they're children only in a spiritual sense I think uh, they're a corrupt or lost soul taken to darkness reanimating a body with vampiric life I get the feeling they can't really pass on vampirism I think it's too personal a thing and the person must as he says be a child of Lilith I'm not sure what that means but it makes sense that vampires can't just willy-nilly turn other people. If they could do that, I mean, how long would it take before the whole world had a serious vampire epidemic? I mean, not long. We more or less don't even believe vampires exist. I'd be surprised if there were even one here in Australia. I mean, maybe maybe it could be in Sydney. It's a pretty big place. But the point of it is, uh, if there is one... I've never heard or seen anything that could indicate it was true. Now for the other big gun in the popular horror fiction, that's werewolves. I mean, thank God I've not heard of any sign of these guys. Maybe they aren't around anymore, uh, or maybe only in Europe or something. They may not be real at all, but I wouldn't bet on that. Okay, so that bit about the vampire was an excerpt from Dave's book he claims to have gotten from a French aristocrat living abroad in Poland in 1820. Doesn't mention if the vampire was cured by draining his sire completely or if he simply let himself get burnt by the sun. Though I've got another book here called Collected Journals and Writings of the Hunters. It's by a fellow named Victor Hills. Now, this book is beautiful inside. The outer cover is made of wood. It's leather and brass, but quite battered and patchy. The inside uh, appears to be, looks like handwritten in the most beautiful script with illuminations like maybe an old monk would do. Uh, there are pages from other books sewn in, uh, and other places it looks like transcripts from other books. I assume... I assume they'd be the journals and writings of the hunters, whomever or whatever they are. So, how did you? Vamp- not vampires, werewolves. Yes. May 18, 1718. French Louisiana, Sweetwater. The locals often tell tales of the Rougarou. More often than not, the accused is nothing more than a crazed man or woman who has made a nuisance of themselves one too many times and then has to face the superstitious wrath of the locals. But there is something more to the killer of Sweetwater. The way he threw globs of his victims about evokes the image of a dog tearing at a rabbit. He has left a trail of twelve dead in his wake. Terrible for sure. But the trouble started with livestock deaths. This is typical of a Rougarou. Often the inflicted will satiate his desire for carnage by killing sheep and cattle. Perhaps it is the last vestiges of his humanity, trying to blunt the force of his bloodlust on creatures of a lower order. But they will quickly move on to seeking the blood of their own kin soon enough. The dead thus far have come from but two families slain over the course of two months. My first task has been to determine if a member of either family is still alive and if a member is missing. The only survivor I could find is a second cousin, and they will likely be next. Frank Legoire 
is the missing one who must be the Rougarou. I found the werewolves of the New World to be of a somewhat different character to those of the Old World. Here, the Rougarou, as they are called, take the form of a monster somewhere between a man and a wolf, never quite taking the full form of the wolf. The only other place I'd heard of this behaviour was in Sweden and Norway, where the greatest berserker warriors were said to be taken by the wolf's spirit in battle. Rougarou are not warriors, but rather murderous beasts with but one purpose. Berserkers would not discriminate between friend or foe when transformed, but I can tell you that Rougarou will distinguish between their family and those who aren't. They will relentlessly hunt down those who share their blood with great discrimination. I have placed Louise Favre in a cabin within a pentagram drawn in chicken's blood. She believes this to be an effective ward against the Rougarou, but the truth is, I don't know if anything other than a strong iron cage could keep one out. Even then, it would need to be extraordinarily robust, as the Rougarou is possessed of tremendous strength. While I write this, I am waiting with my pistols and sword in the rafters. I have soaked myself and my equipment in the strongest liquor I could find in an effort to kill my scent. Silver bullets are loaded and ready, and my sword has silver inlay on its edges. My plan is simple. It is to wait for the beast to show itself, and then shoot it. I have two shots, and will only resort to my sword in the direst of need. If my shots fail, I will need to flee with maximal alacrity, and hope the creature takes as much time and delight in killing Louise as he has his previous victims. It may sound like I am being cowardly, but in the face of such ferocity as a Rougarou displays, I have proven my mettle just by sitting in wait for it. Uh, look, yeah, it goes on, uh, but I'll, I'll give you the spoilers. He killed the monster. It turned out it was Louise. Dun, dun, dun. She transformed while a hunter was scratching away in his book. He was dragged down from the rafters and lost a leg in the process. He did manage to get a shot off, which evidently wounded Louise. Hmm, Louise dog? I don't know. That gave the hunter enough time to pick up his sword from where it dropped uh, and uh, to impale Louise as she lunged at him. He finished her off with a shot to the head. This hunter guy was tough as old boots, because after all that, he tied a tourniquet around his leg and waited for the morning when he was discovered and helped to a surgeon skilled in sewing up amputated limbs, uh, which I think they did a fair bit of back then. Yeah, and they didn't have any anaesthetic either, so there is that. I did some searches on the names and dates in the account, and apparently there was a massacre near what was to be New Orleans at that time. It was put down to a fight between two families and a tribe of Native Americans who followed the family south from some other, well, I don't know, some place. I'm not really sure how I feel about all of that. Look, I'm, I'm pretty sure there aren't any werewolves, marsupial or otherwise, in Australia. The books I have don't seem to have any journals or, or letters or articles about Australia or Australian-specific monsters. Uh, this, this isn't because there aren't any. I mean, God knows we've got enough missing people, unexplained deaths to accommodate a few. But these books came from the US and I think one's from Britain. Look, I got enough info out of these books for tonight, but 
uh, you know, what I face tonight isn't native to Australia. Uh, that's um, that's kind of jumping ahead a bit. This is my exit plan.